0: first look at defamiliarization if you're not familiar with this term you will be presently secondly we will look at new Narnia some of you may be aware that Prince Caspian is set 1,300 years after lion witch and wardrobe and it is a very different place to the to the country that the Pavances left in lion witch and wardrobe with Aslan etc we will then see that this new Narnia is quite a bit more savage we will also discover that there are some temptations that the Pavansi children and other Narnians face in combating their mortal enemies, the Telmarines. And then finally, we will look at the solution to the dilemma that they find themselves in. Now, how many people here have either seen the film or read the book? Please raise your hands. Okay, hands down. Who has not? Raise your hands. Come on, folks. (laughs) You've got to make an effort here. Hopefully you will after this. And if you ask the question first, you will get a ticket. Yes, we've got them here. All right, then, what do I mean by defamiliarization? Well, defamiliarization is something that artists use, musicians, painters, sculptors, photographers use, where they take something that is commonplace, and then they cast it in a different light, so it bursts on your imagination in a different way, so you appreciate it like you never did before, because you've become familiar with an object, or a person, or a concept. And this occurs to the Provence children. When Peter arrives in Narnia, the eldest of the four siblings, he sees that it is a different place. There were ruins there and, of course, fantastic New Zealand scenery. I never knew that Narnia looks so much like Aotearoa, God's Zone, New Zealand. I mean, when when they come out of that cave in the um, Bay of Islands, my friends, and there's puhutakawas hanging on the cliff face, I thought, Narnia looks just like New Zealand. I think I've seen this place before. So it's a very good advertisement for our own beautiful country. But it's very different, and Peter's already seen this, and this is what he has to say. He says, I wonder where we are and what all this means. Now, a very smart person who goes and sees this film will realize it's not just about an adventure flick with crazy creatures and a battle scene at the end. There is a hidden message behind the story that C.S. Lewis has embedded in this fantastic children's story. And how does this work? How does this defamiliarization work? Let me run this idea past you so you thoroughly understand the concept. The object you're going to see here is very common. It is a cat. How many people here have a cat? Raise your hands, please, hands down. The rest of you, you're doing a great job. For those people who have a cat, we'll pray for you later. (laughs) Now, listen to me, friends. When you first got that cat, if it was a kitten and you could hold it in just one hand and and it would like lick you with its kind of coarse tongue and it would make that purring sound when you stroked it. It was the center of your universe. It was important. You loved it. Everyone wanted to hold it. But guess what happened to the cat? It grew up. <laughs> it started to demand things. You had to train it. Hopefully you did. And, and the cat became familiar to you so that now it could possibly be that the cat that you loved as a kitten has become boring or, dare I say it, burdensome to some of you. You can tell by the sniggers out there. Some people have recognized this already. What has happened? That which was new and exciting has become familiar to you. You see, here's what amazed C.S. Lewis. He said, the creation of the universe by a supreme being, the sending of his only begotten son, wrapping divinity in a cloak or a garment of flesh, an incarnation of God on earth, living for three years amongst a bunch of knuckleheads and discipling them, and then he dies on a cross for the sins of the world, is risen from the dead, and then promises you and I eternal life can become what when we've heard it many times? Familiar, commonplace, boring even, and for some people who give up on their faith, burdensome i have heard it so many times. And here's the real trick for C.S. Lewis. He said, how can I take the most amazing, more, more amazing than nuclear power, folks... More amazing than sliced bread, dare I suggest it. It's the very thing that could transform the lives of men and women and even whole countries. And yet to us it's so commonplace when you hear it preached from a sermon, you cannot help yourself yawning sometimes. Why? It's not because the truth has lost its potency. It's it's because it's become familiar to you and I. you see how this defamiliarization works? And this is what C.S. Lewis wanted to do with the Narnia Chronicles. Well, he said, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, "...sometimes fairy stories may say best what is to be said." In other words, let's not have another sermon. (laughs) Let's not have just another pretty Christian book. But let's have a fairy story that captures the imagination of everybody. And underneath it, there'll be some message in here, which brings us from defamiliarization to the new Narnia. What kind of place is this new Narnia? C.S. Lewis, the, the book was published in 1950, and he received a letter 10 years later from a, uh, a young schoolgirl called um, Anne. She was 10 years of age. And Anne, at 10 years of age, was smart enough to recognize there was more to this story than meets the eye. And she said, what do these books mean? And C.S. Lewis wrote this letter back to her, which still survives today. And in the letter, he said this, the entire story of the Chronicles of Narnia is the gospel. The first book, Lion, Witch and Wardrobe, is about Jesus, his death and resurrection. So, if you haven't worked this out, folks, Aslan the lion is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the God whom the Christians worship. And in the book, he dies... And then he comes back to life and he redeems who? Edmund, which is representing you and I. Don't tell me you don't fall for Turkish delights, folks, <laughs> over the pleasures of this world. That's what he has done. He has redeemed us. But he said Prince Caspian was a different message. He said Prince Caspian was about the restoration of true religion after corruption enters into the world. The, re- the restoration of true religion after corruption enters into the world. Now what we find in the story is that the world of Narnia is very different to Lion, Witch and Wardrobe, 1,300 years have passed. We have up here on my slide, on the left hand side, a couple of the main characters, but they're kind of representative One is a minotaur, the other is a fawn, Mr. Tumnus, for those of you who recall the first film or the book, great characters. But also you can get a talking beaver. A talking mouse, you can get all kinds of talking creatures in Narnia. It's this magical, mystical world that doesn't kind of make sense to our own. We've got beasts of the field talking like human beings and walking upright, etc. And some kind of animals from classical mythology as well. The old Narnians then, this is what they believe. On the one hand, which I should say, we've got the old Narnians on one hand. The other hand, over the 1,300 years, a different group of people have come into Narnia. They are called the Telmarines. And I want you to say this with me, folks, to make sure that I'm not just talking to myself. Telmarines. Let's do it together. Telmarines. Now, the Telmarines have started to dominate Narnia. They have persecuted the old Narnians and sent them into the forests and into hiding. These Telmarines are epitomized, of course, as you can see, by King Moraz, who is on the right, far right-hand side. Both of these groups have very different belief systems. What we know is that the Narnians themselves are what we call pre-modernists. They believe in the rational world. They don't give up on thinking. But they also believe in revelation, that Aslan might even speak to them personally. Remember, Aslan's a type of Christ. That Aslan speaks to you personally, either through, in our context, a preacher or a Bible, or just through meditating on the things of God. They also believe not just in the material world of the trees and the rocks and the rivers. The old Narnians believe in the spiritual realm. Therefore, they believe in, as you can see, aslan They believe in Aslan. The Telmarines are vastly different. They reject the idea that there's such a thing as revelation, that God or Aslan might speak to anybody. They also reject the spiritual. They believe that the world, all there is is what you perceive through your five natural senses. Folks, that's what the Telmarines believe. There is no spiritual realm of heaven and hell, angels or demons or spirits of any kind. It is just the material world. And they don't believe in Asland. and they are what we would call today, "died in the wool atheists. So our Telmarines are atheists compared to what we might call our theists, our old Narnians. This is so powerful, has such an impact on Narnia, that even some of the Narnians now have doubts about the existence of Asland. So when Prince Caspian meets our dwarf here, you see on the slide, Trumpkin, one of the main characters of the film, Trumpkin says this to him, who believes in Aslan nowadays? And of course the tragedy is that you find this in some churches, so influenced by the world, they now have to start doubts about the existence of God. A terrible place that we find ourselves in, but a place that the Narnians found themselves in. Now my friends, I want to suggest to you that this is very similar to Aotearoa. You see, C.S. Lewis was arguing that this is what was taking place in England in the 1950s, that there was a movement away from theism or belief in God towards atheism in his very own lifetime. And he was extremely concerned about this. For those of you who have any doubts about C.S. Lewis's smarts, the, the Narnian books have sold 100 and 100 million copies. When he entered Oxford University... He received the highest grades the examiner had ever seen in his entire life as an examiner at Oxford University. He, he published the Narnian Chronicles over just a 10 year period, along with various academic works as well, and he has bona fide the one of great intellects of the 21st century. And he, as he, his, we're using his perceptive mind and his, his uh, Christian ethos, he saw great dangers for England. But not just for England, for Western society. See see what's happened here in New Zealand since the book was published in around 1950. Now this is not altogether clear on the chart and I apologize for that. But I want you to catch this. On the left hand side we have percentages. Zero up to 40% of New Zealand. Then at the bottom we have the census years. These are census figures from 1956 through to 2006. We have Anglican, Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist and Baptist. You can't see all of these just because it's so washed out unfortunately. But if you look at the Anglicans on here, in 1956 they represented 35% of the New Zealand population. That means that one in three New Zealanders, if you were to ask them, would have said they were what? An Anglican. It doesn't require too much. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon, ladies and gentlemen. It's one in three New Zealanders would have said they were an Anglican. But look what's happened over 50 years. We are now down to Anglicans making up how much? 15% 15% of the New Zealand population. The next one on the line you don't have is Presbyterian. It was 50 years ago, running at about 22% of the population. Today, it is less than 10%. The Catholics have remained fairly static around 15%. Methodism has fallen from around 7 and 8% down to 3%. And the Baptists, who I don't know if you can see here, but are running right down the bottom at about 2%, which is where the Pentecostals find themselves too, by the way, for those of you who are interested in this. What does this mean? It means that New Zealanders, in 1956, over 90% of our population said they were what? Narnians. They said they were theists of one sort or another, had a belief in the supreme being. See, we have seen a massive transformation of New Zealand society in 50 years, folks. It is now down to perhaps less than 50% of our population is what we would call Narnians, or people who believe in Asland. Look at our next line on our chart here. The number of people who say they have no religion in New Zealand has rapidly risen over the last 50 years. It was virtually nothing in 1956. In the year 2006, where you and I reside right now today, it is close to 35%. And if we add in two other categories, which I haven't done here, it pushes close to 40%. Some people who object to the question... If you add those in and say that they are probably atheists or people who don't believe in God, then we're getting close to 50% of our population finds ourselves in this category. Remember my chart before? Well, let's change it. And let's have Narnia in New Zealand, pre 1950, as opposed to, you know, Narnia prior uh, for Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Telmarine New Zealand, post 1950. What do these two different worlds look like? Well, 50 years ago, most New Zealanders believed in some kind of revelatory power of the gospel. They also were rationalists as well. They were spiritual and material, I would suggest, and they definitely believed in God, the vast bulk of New Zealand's population of one kind or another were theists. In our own period, we've moved towards a purely rationalistic outlook on life, We are very much materialistic, and I don't mean in the acquisition of possessions, although that is one of our great failings. Materialism is this, simply that this world which we perceive through our five senses is all there is. That's what a materialist is in this context, and by what what C.S. Lewis meant by this. They also don't believe in God. So we have seen a massive transformation in New Zealand. I want us then to look at what C.S. Lewis said could be the likely outcome of this situation. In Narnia and for Western civilization. His question was this If we take away the Judeo Christian faith from most of the people of any country, which was the foundation of their law and their civil behavior, can that law and that civil behavior remain? Now, C.S. Lewis' argument in the Chronicles of Narnia and in Prince Caspian is no, that if you get rid of that foundational faith, there is no reason, my friends, for you and I to believe that there are objective morals out there, there are objective standards, and there is life after death for which we will be accountable to God. That is why when the children meet Trumpkin, he says this, you may find Narnia a more savage place than you remember, and it certainly is, folks. This is nicely illustrated by Lucy. Now, I like Lucy. One is she's got cute freckles across her nose. That is, without a doubt. The other is that she's the most spiritual of the Pavanci children, without a doubt. And as they arrive in Narnia, their boat pulls up against a a riverbank, and she gets out. There is a bear in the distance. Folks, hopefully you remember this in the film. And the bear is there, obviously foraging for food in the river. And she starts to move towards this bear. She is newly arrived in Narnia. So she thinks that this bear will behave as bears behaved 1,300 years ago. It will be friendly, if somewhat stupid. I don't know if you know this, folks. Bears in C.S. Lewis's writings. Although they're sentient, they have a good sense of humor. They're not exactly the smartest, you know, the sharpest pencil in the pack. Um, And it'll be friendly, and she'll be able to have a conversation with it. As she moves towards this bear, the bear rears up and then starts to move towards her. Now, Trumpkin tells her to stop. Well, of course, as most kids do when you're you're faced with a beast much bigger than you with huge claws and massive teeth that wants to eat you, you run. (laughs) She, She does the exact opposite. Susan is there with her bow and arrow. She does not release the arrow. Why? Because she still has this mindset that bears are friendly speaking animals, not savage beasts. The only thing that saves Lucy is Trumpkin who fires his arrow and kills the bear. And it dawns on Lucy that something has gone terribly wrong in Narnia. This animal has changed. And here's her very sharp, astute observation. She said, wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world, at home, men started going wild inside like the animals here and still looked like men. Take your time, folks, because it's worth meditating upon. Here's what she's saying. Wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world at home, men started going wild inside like the animals here and still looked like men. You see, C.S. Lewis's argument is this. Take away that Judeo-Christian faith, the foundation upon which our civilization and our civil society rests, and you may find people turn into savages. This certainly happened in Narnia. Nicely or unpleasantly characterized by King Moraz, who you can see here. He has broken what C.S. Lewis called the natural laws. I'm not talking about the laws of gravity or laws like that. I'm talking about the laws that center around morality. You see, he killed his brother. Do you know natural law does not advocate the killing of your family and your siblings? I don't know if you're aware of that. He then usurps his position and takes authority over Narnia. My friends, he's broken the natural law of the state. And then he tries to kill Prince Caspian, his nephew, breaking the natural law that adults should do what? Protect children. So he has he symbolizes the breaching of the natural law, this King Muraz who rules over Narnia. Well, we've seen a rise in the no religion, folks. But look at this. We'll go back here. Declining religiosity in New Zealand. As we've had a declining religiosity, we've had a corresponding rise in the tide of murder and mayhem in our country. From ni- over a 50-year period, on the, the red dots represent homicides in New Zealand from 1950 through to about 2006 on our chart. The blue line represents convictions for violent offences in New Zealand. Can you see that these are on the increase, ladies and gentlemen? That there has been a massive increase Let's just go back here. See the red line going up? Let's go to the one we just looked at. See the red line here going up? Let's go back. Let's go forward. Let's go back. Let's go forward. Are you getting the picture? That there may be a correlation. Now, some of you are smart out there. You're saying to me, Adam, but we've had a population increase. We would expect this to take place. Do you know in, 19, I think in 1950, 1950, there were two convictions in New Zealand for homicide? In the entire year! Two convictions! My friends, we could get rid of most of our police force if we'd gone back to that period. Do you realise the population of New Zealand in this period was roughly about 2 million? So you're thinking, oh gosh, it must have been a lot less at him for two convictions. No, it was a vastly different world we lived in then. We've just forgotten. That's one of the beauties of history, folks, is to hopefully help us not to forget that which has happened in the past. We have seen an increase in New Zealand's population then up to the present day of about 100%, from 2 million to 4 million. This would mean that we would have an increase in convictions for homicide in the order of what? a 100% increase. Do you know what the actual rate of increase has been over the last 50 years? It has been 4,000%. Oh, just—that's no, not just the population increase, ladies and gentlemen. What people believe radically changes the way they behave. If you tell people long enough that there is no God and that they are lucky mud, some cosmic accident, and there is no divine creator, and that they are merely just animals, guess how they will behave? As though there is no hereafter and like animals. Thank you, sir. That's what I truly believe. Well, we find ourselves in a difficult situation. C.S. Lewis understood this extremely well. And he said there could be some solutions to this. But in actual fact, our Narnians fall into temptation as they try and solve this dilemma. Now this is not altogether clear on the slide, in my next few slides. But the two main dwarfs in the story, one a black dwarf and one a different type of dwarf, our man Trumpkin the taller, the shorter of these is Nicobrick. Do not call any of your children Nickerbrick, folks. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. I mean, imagine the kid going to school for the first day and the teacher calls out the roll and it's got, Paul, Adam, Nickerbrick. <laughs> you know that during the school break it's going to be the old knuckle. and You know what kids are like, them a little knuckling here and a ribbing here. You don't want to do that, boys and girls. But knickerbrick is a dark dwarf and he gets frustrated after the blowing of the horn that Aslan hasn't appeared, that they haven't had any victory or success. So he decides to take another route, and that is to call up the White Witch. Now, she's not altogether clear here, folks, but believe it or not, she's re- she is there. She's just very white today. <laughs> now, calling up the White Witch is really an occult practice because he believes that the White Witch will be able to do something and get rid of the Telmarines, which is very true. The White Witch may be able to do that. But here's the problem. If the White Witch does come on the scenes, guess what's going to happen when she's got rid of the Telmarines? She'll do exactly what she did with Edmund. She'll be nice to him while she gets what she wants. But ultimately, she will enslave the human race and Narnia again. How does this work in a church environment? I would suggest to you there is a very real fear, ladies and gentlemen, as we look at New Zealand and we say, hey, we want to make a bigger impact, that we try to domesticate the gospel. That we try and take Christianity and make it more acceptable to other people. It's like a horoscope. You know why people like horoscopes, even though they're clearly nonsense? It's because it's domesticated. It makes no demands on them. There's no demands of sacrifice, serving others, caring for other people. It is simply about what I can get out of it. Here's the danger. When churches adopt that philosophy... And don't think that they're not. Here's what happens to God. God becomes little more than a genie in a bottle. A God we can use to get what we've got. Instead of the sovereign almighty God who is king of kings, lord of lords, he suddenly now becomes our homeboy. Somebody we can use and call upon for every little thing that we have when it's convenient to us. That's not the sovereign God of the universe, ladies and gentlemen, who is worthy of worship, praise, and adoration, and even obedience. I know it's a terrible word to say in a church environment, but obedience to him. Now, I believe that in this sense the occult can enter into a church when we start turning our beliefs to this. Finally, pragmatism. We recognize that sometimes sin is unfashionable. Talking about hell is unfashionable. We change the gospel to make it more fashionable so more people come to church. And what we've done is we've sold our souls out. We're not actually saying what Jesus said. We're saying what we think other people should say. Do you know what's happened Instead of us evangelizing the world, the world is evangelizing us. We become more like the world rather than getting them to become more like God, an amazing transformation taking place. Pragmatism. We want to stay away from that. I want to finish with my solution here before we take some of your questions. What is C.S. Lewis's solution then, if calling in the white witch isn't really the answer? Hopefully, many of you would have picked that up. It wasn't the right answer without me having to tell you. The solution is this. C.S. Lewis believed, as he had, that people need a personal experience with God Almighty themselves. This was his answer. He said people need to connect with God, not just with a church, not just with a prayer group, not just with singing songs and bring it, but connect authentically with God. When Lucy finally finds Asland, the first. Of the Pavansi childrens to see Aslan, she is desperate. She realises that all is hanging on whether Aslan turns up or not. She is fearful, she is afraid, and she says these words to Aslan: "I thought you would come bounding in with a mighty roar and scare away the enemies." And our lion Aslan says, "Firstly, nothing's going to happen the same as it did in the past." And she is so desperate, she grabs a hold of Aslan. So he's this massive lion. is this little kid. Lucy grabs a hold of Aslan and buries her face in his royal mane. And as she does this, in the book it tells us that some of Aslan's magic or power starts to rub off on her. And she sits bolt right up and she says, Aslan, I'm so sorry. I am now ready. Do you know that's what most Christians need to do? Have an intimate close, embracing relationship with God. That's where the power lies. That's where the hope lies. Not in more programs, not in better music, which we all need, I'm all for that, and better PowerPoint. We all need that sort of thing, but ultimately all that is just superficial if we don't have a life-giving experience with God. Here's what Aslan has to say to Lucy as she sits bolt upright. She said, now you are a lioness. And now all Narnia will be renewed. How can Aotearoa, New Zealand, or Western civilization be renewed with you and I being renewed first? There is no way it's going to happen elsewise. Final point is this I want to mention to you. In the story, everyone plays their role. Prince Caspian's nurse tells Prince Caspian about the Narnians and Asland. Professor Cornelius tells Prince Caspian about the ancient past, the true history of Narnia. We find the four Pavansi children, each one of them plays their own role. Peter plays his role by going in a one-on-one combat with a full-grown man. Prince Caspian fights against his own people. Do you know what C.S. Lewis is really saying to us? He is saying that instead of us being swamped by the culture of this world, that we should make an authentic, vibrant, Christian culture, where we say we want Christians who are farmers, plumbers, carpenters, doctors, lawyers, university lecturers, not just preachers and song leaders, but architects, dress designers, do you know what else he's saying? Artists. Do you know what got us in the situation we are in today? It wasn't a lack of preachers, it wasn't even the parliamentarians. It was our culture. You see, if we want to change culture, we need people who are culture changers. We need people in TV. We need screenplay writers. We need musicians. Who's more influential, Reuben or Brooke Fraser? Now, nothing against Reuben. I mean, Brooke Fraser's obviously much better looking, but <laughs> you see how this works, folks? This is how this works. Christians implementing their faith in their vocation and the thing that they love. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about books and his style of artistic endeavour. He said, what we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects. He wants us to take our culture out into the community and implement our faith in the very things that we do in our job. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.